So welcome to a very special Dairy Pod podcast. Um, we're for the first time doing the podcast from the Murray Dairy region, and I'm joined by special guest Ian Gibb, who's just presented to a room full of farmers and service providers, providing a bit of an insight into 30 years of dairy experience, but also um, talking about testing times, which probably leads me to my first question there, Ian, around, you started off with the first slide, around testing times, um, and had a quote about in New South Wales, it's one long drought interrupted by floods, so maybe even if you'd like to comment on the testing times we're going and putting them into some perspective from your end. Yeah, I, I think I started off by talking about how uh, I doubt very much that times have ever not been testing for the people who were part of it. Um, the dairy industry's been a challenge. It's been through fires and floods and price crashes and uh, deregulation and all sorts of things. Um, and for the people who were part of it at that time, uh, the circumstances would have been testing. There's no doubt about that. I think the the more relevant question is usually compared to what. Hmm. So maybe that leads to a bit of contexting about what you think is going on at the moment. There's obviously some tough elements people are facing, but a little bit of upside as far as the season is right now. Have you got a few quick words on how you think we are placed right now as the dairy industry looking at the season ahead? Yeah, uh, in preparing for this uh, this day, I, uh, I logged onto the Dairy Australia website and and uh, it listed things like um, climate change, uh, uh, lack of a rapid increase in productivity in recent years, um, uh, volatile markets as, as challenges. And in this region in particular, the other major challenge has been 20 years of rapid change to the water industry. And uh, that's thrown up numerous questions for for farm businesses about uh, what what the fundamentals of their business should be and how they cope with uh, a situation where prices are not only volatile but but uh, the use of the resource is entirely different from what it has been in the past mm. and those same sorts of challenges are also presented to service providers in the area yeah so you described how you started out in the dairy industry in the early 70s and then branched out on your own mid-80s. Um, and you were describing what it was like in 1985 and what you walked straight into. And I guess another part of the same thought was around the people that were well prepared and understood their business really well then. How were they able to cope with the circumstances in the 80s? And do you see any correlation to that, to what we're facing in 2019? Yeah, I certainly do. In a lot of respects, in in the nineteen eighties, the dairy industry was a relatively naive place. Uh, we'd come through some years of prosperity, and uh, was back in the era when um, share farmers were quite common. And um, the pattern was that people could start off as a farm worker, become a share farmer, uh, graduate to farm ownership. And in a lifetime in in the industry, accumulate enough assets to retire in reasonable comfort, and there were probably twenty or thirty percent of of established farm businesses who'd come through that pathway. Um, the change has been so rapid since then 
that I'd be very surprised to encounter too many people that fit that description of, of business growth today. Um, my impression is that the farmers that survive today, or the farm businesses that survive today, because it's not just about individual farmers, mm. uh, they do so because they have a very clear understanding of their business, what drives it, and they are quite capable of dealing with um, changes and threats by integrating uh, the opportunities into their businesses. Yep. You also described a little bit about your own journey in terms of the ups and downs of the industry, in both uh, from a business perspective and a personal perspective, and also around some of the farmers you've been dealing with over time, which reminded me of a quote around resilience not being a person or a personality, but really a point in time for people. Um, just wanted you to, um, I guess, touch back on some of those reflections on being a resilient person versus how you deal with times when, I guess, your resilience is really tested. It's not, it's not about being just being a resilient person, but you will be tested at certain times then. Yeah, that's a, it's a, a question we could probably talk about for most of the rest of the afternoon. There are, there are so many angles to it. Um, we had a, a, a very um, a direct question from, from one of the younger people in the, in, the, mm. in the group who asked how you deal with uh, someone who's under immediate stress and how do you avoid taking on um, their burden? And, uh, and I can really only talk from my own experience and from what I learned from, from mentors myself. And that is that ultimately people are responsible for their own decisions and you can't take, you can't take credit for their uh, successes and you, you shouldn't uh, take the blame for their failures either. Yep. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty tough stuff to be able to stand back far enough to be able to, to say, well, look, I, you've asked for my independent advice. I can give you my advice. It's actually up to you to decide which parts of it to accept and which parts to reject. And uh, I will go home tonight and, and hopefully I'll forget about some of those issues. You never forget about them all. Mm. Um, but you're the one who has to make the decision and live with the consequences in the long term. Now, you never say that to a client, mm. but that's really what you have to go through in your own mind to protect yourself. Do you find that of young service providers and people that are, I guess, often thrust into this role of a counsellor just through their profession, not through being a professional counsellor, that um, that realisation of the amount of control you have over a situation versus the amount you're taking on, that you're going and seeing people under stress? Um, and how that plays out. I guess the scenario you had was hiding behind a tree, Ian, um, <laughs> and there's two aspects to it. Sometimes you're avoiding people for your own mental health because they are, uh, to quote yourself, a serial pest, but other times you're hiding behind a tree because you were avoiding something that is within your control. Have you got any thoughts on that? You're standing there, you've seen someone you don't want to see, you're standing there in the middle of the wilderness in Tasmania hiding behind a tree, and <laughs> the thought about, am I hiding because of me or am I hiding because of them? Yeah, it's a, a deep and meaningful question, like it's and a difficult one. Um, yeah, that's the context of the of the quote was was about uh, uh, trying to find some space for myself and escape, and uh, and that escape for me was uh, fishing in the wilds of Tasmania, and and I 
I, um, I was more than happy to be entirely on my own and somewhat surprised in this remote area to see another fisherman. And as it turned out, uh, I actually knew this other fisherman. So, <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it, it does leave you with mixed feelings. On the one hand, you want, you want your, uh, your serenity, uh, but on the other, it's nice to chat to someone and, and uh, we left on pretty good terms after exchanging a few words. So it's, it, yeah, difficult thing. Yeah, and it's also that point around you've, you've made that conscious decision to go to the wilds of Tasmania to go fishing um, because you needed that break rather than trying to plough through it and then potentially avoiding what you're supposed to be doing and dropping the ball. Um, yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, that, you're dead right. So really important part of self-preservation is, is uh, knowing uh, when to draw the line, when you need a bit of space, um, when you need to support people around you. Yeah, and I guess it's also um, you've realised it in yourself that you may not be coping or you needed that break. Um, running into other people um, that are also going through that, and this goes for farmers and service providers, you're, you're seeing somebody else sort of drop the ball in front of you, is that is it rude to try and pry too much or how do you think that can an issue like that can be tackled when you are seeing somebody who's normally capable or they might not all normally be capable, but seeing somebody who's not coping. Um... Yeah, it's, it, it's a difficult thing to manage but I think it is something that people learn with experience to recognise the symptoms of stress that you know occur in yourself. So uh, when, you're, when you're really under pressure uh, we all have different characteristics and uh, you know, the sorts of things you see are people um, avoiding social situations because they can't cope, uh, they've just had too much, uh, people making promises that they have no real uh, potential to f fulfil because they're either too busy or um, incapable of doing it, but just not being aware enough to understand that they need help. Um, and the example I quoted was of a, a, a person from a bank who was talking to a, a friend and client uh, and this person hadn't delivered on several things they'd promised to do. And to cut a long story short, what happened in the end was that the, the bank were understanding enough to, to recognise that that young person needed support. Uh, they, they, were, they were exhibiting some of that avoidance behaviour and... Uh, uh, had really made, made promise that they, promises they couldn't hope to fulfil. So for farmers particularly, but I, I think it cuts across a few sectors, but the, the thought around um, you being more than just an individual, you are your job, you are a good farmer, and wrapping your personality up in being seen and perceived to be really on top of it, and it's your career, it's your business, it's also who you are and it's what people recognise you in. Um, do you see that as a, as a nuance that's probably unique to farming, that people really do tend to wrap themselves, their whole personality up in, in the business? Um, yeah, I, I doubt that it's unique to farming, but it is certainly something you see quite commonly among, well, successful business people, but successful farmers. Um, they can be so wrapped up in what they're doing that they really define themselves as as whatever it is they're trying to achieve. So if that's the, the person who milks the most cows or the person with the highest production or the the, uh, the 
the chairman of the board of the local dairy co-op, um, when things change and uh, they no longer have what they regard as, as those characteristics that define them, if they think of that as this is what I am, uh, those th that, um, that defining characteristic is gone or has changed, therefore I, I'm no longer the person I want to think I am, that can be a real threat. Mm. Now, there's two sketches mentioned today, Ian. One was the um, Monty Python for Yorkshiremen, and the other one was an infamous sketch from the early 2000s with two farm and co-farm consultants dressing up as um, wizards and looking <laughs> into the future. Um, was it mid-drought or pre-drought that that happened and you looked in the crystal ball? If you were going to rehash that sketch, sketch sorry, um, again, what would you think the um, two farm and co-consultants might be saying about 2019 looking forward? For the dairy industry, yeah, the 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 uh, example you referred to occurred at at Kyabram at the old research station in uh, in two thousand, and it was uh, the uh, first year when the Goulburn system received less than a hundred percent allocation, and uh, what we were trying to do was was uh, well, we we set it up as a um, fortune teller, so uh, I was the I was the uh, the fortune teller with the crystal ball and the and the wig, and uh, Stuart Brown, my my partner, was uh, was the client, and he was asking me questions about what the predictions were for the future, and and the the thinking behind it was really to get people um, looking at what sort of physical evidence there was, and uh, and think about how that impacted on their business, and the the interesting result of that was that. Uh, we inspired Goldman Murray Water to be a lot more communicative about yeah. uh, predictions of of things like uh, uh, when farmers would receive an allocation and what it would eventually be. And we went through a number of iterations of of um, uh, water availability models. And uh, what really pleases me about that is that we you get to today and. Um, most people can get a regular report of, of what the current allocation is and what they can expect to happen at, given a, a range of scenarios over the next few months. So it's, and, and I mean, I'm not saying that we take the credit for that, but it was part of the thinking behind uh, generating that extra information. Yeah, and um, word got around that you were coming up and doing this today and you then got dusted out for another day the other day and with the DBN group um, might have been covering for someone who injured themselves but um, I guess being less hands on in the business um, that crystal ball might have got a little bit cloudier until you spoke to uh, a group of farmers that were involved in a discussion group was there any insights you kind of gathered from them from where they're seeing the industry and the kind of discussions um, they were having yesterday was there any surprises there or the level of discussion you heard and helped facilitate there in terms of where, um, I guess, good farmers are operating and some of the discussions they're having, some of the thinking they're doing? Yeah, there, there were some surprises. Um, like you said, I, I've, I've been semi-retired semi for five years and um, my impressions of the industry and how it's travelling are, are really gained by um, the professional contacts I have and what I read in the press. And I think I had a more pessimistic view of of um, the outlook for the industry than these farmers conveyed. 
So they were an exceptional group, mind you. These are people with very diverse businesses who understand their businesses very well, are extremely articulate and able to see inside someone else's business and, uh, and listen and, and be respectful of what these other people are saying about uh, their plans and intentions and how they intend to deal with adversity. So it was, a, it was an eye-opener for me and I came away from the meeting um, with a lot of added respect for these farmers but also with a better appreciation of how they saw what some would see as threats as being opportunities for them. We'd like to, I guess, lay that point out a bit thicker there in terms of opportunities that a lot of the opportunities discussed, as I understand it, were around um, people not seeing that brighter future in dairying, that there's a lot of land that's been laid out, there's been investment made in dairies, there's been um, other elements that people have invested in and not fully utilised that these people are now talking about utilising. Um, have you got any thoughts on the type of people that would be seeing what other people are seeing as a threat and trying to cash in their chips, those that can see them as opportunities and what sort of sets those two groups apart? Um, yeah, I think one of the other characteristics of this group was that they were all young. They were uh, mostly uh, sons of people who I'd uh, dealt with in farm businesses you know, 10, 15, 20 years earlier. And, uh, and they had a pretty optimistic view of the world, um, clearly had a lot of say in their family farm businesses. Um, and they were looking around them and saying, well, you know, there's, uh, there's unused uh, irrigation land with good layout that we could actually take advantage of. We could either buy it or lease it or, or buy fodder from somebody who owns it. Um, there was uh, a discussion too about upgrading a dairy and somebody talking about how many opportunities there might be to buy a second-hand dairy and relocate it. Uh, so a lot of lateral thinking going on and you could just see that, uh, that there were people within the group who had, had ideas of where they'd like to go but after that really constructive discussion uh, were refining their views. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's all the questions I had for you, Ian. Really appreciate your time. I think I've got a lot out of the discussion, both um, in front of the group before and we've extended a fair bit in this podcast. Any final closing comments you had that you really thought you wanted to get across or are you happy to leave it there? No, I'd, I think if I had to make a final comment, it would be the uh, retirement's great. There is life after the dairy industry. But the thing that I have missed most about uh, the dairy industry is the people. Uh, very enterprising people, a lot of support, and, and I suspect you don't see that in other industries. I have to concur with those final thoughts. Thanks again, Ian. Okay. Well, that was a very interesting chat with Ian Gibb. I always get a lot out of chatting to him, and hopefully you got a lot out of today's chat as well. There is more Dairy Pod on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts, but from now, for me, that's it. Thank you. Thank you.